Time and again in the Bible, the message is that physical strength and mental fortitude are not what lead to success. A simple faith in God appears to be the single attribute that is required to move mountains and conquer worlds. Gideon has already proved this with his staggering victory over Midian, where God deliberately whittled down his army to a fraction of the enemy's men and still facilitated an easy win. This theme runs through the Bible like a red thread and is especially evident in the 12 men picked by Jesus to be his disciples. He could have chosen from princes, priests and educated rabbis, but instead chose ordinary people with the right mental attitude, which is why today one of the most fabulous religious buildings on the planet, St Peter's in Rome, is dedicated to a man who, up until he met Jesus, spent his days catching, killing and gutting fish on a lake in central Israel. But all that's to come. For now, it's time to meet the nation's next judge, a wild outcast with a less than perfect pedigree. My name is Chaz Bayfield, and this is Holy Bible, episode 59, Firefoxes. Welcome back, Bible fans. The action dial is back to 10 as we continue to haul our tour bus through Israel's embattled borderlands. The judges are coming thick and fast, and it's easy to see how these legendary heroes might have inspired any amount of wargaming, Marvel Cinematic Universe, and Game of Thrones-style entertainment. Just so as you know, this podcast is neither a devotional nor a Bible study. Then again, nor is it a stick to beat the Bible with either. It's really just the Bible for lazy people. Anyhow, if you've only just heard about us and just hit the play latest episode button, we're well into season six, halfway through the Old Testament book of Judges. There are plenty of Bible in a year podcasts out there. We're over a year in and taking the slow lane. So welcome new people, welcome back travel weary regulars. We're about to see who's next up to lead Israel. After 50 years of peace, the Ammonite army marches into Israel and sets up camp in Gilead in East Manasseh. An Israelite force gathers to meet them and Gilead's leaders announce that anyone who commands the attack against Ammon can rule over them. Enter Jephthah. As the son of a prostitute, Jephthah has already been alienated from the rest of his family. His father is a warrior and, not wanting their illegitimate brother to have any share in their inheritance, the man's other sons drive him away. Jephthah settles in a different town where he lives among a group of unsavoury outcasts, but his family now realise that he might be the one man who can help them overthrow the Ammonites. Gilead's elders approach Jephthah, asking him to lead their army in the fight against Ammon. But instead of being flattered, Jephthah is insulted that they have come to him for help after driving him away. The elders swear that they will make Jephthah leader of Gilead if he fights with them, but Jephthah seems highly dubious that these people will actually honour their promises. After all, they drove him out of his father's house and he can see that they are only being nice because they want something. 
However, the men assure him that he really will be their leader if he can kick the invaders back to Ammon, telling him that God is their witness if they renege on the deal. Convinced, Jephthah arrives at the Israelite army camp and prepares for battle. It's a big promotion for him. His predecessor, Jair, has 30 sons, suggesting a harem of wives requiring considerable wealth. Meanwhile, Jephthah has just one daughter, the assumption being that he is considerably poorer than Jair. After making a vow to God to fight on his behalf, Jephthah squares up to Ammon's king, asking him why he has attacked Israel. The king's answer is simple. On their journey to the promised land of Canaan, the Israelites took a chunk of Ammonite territory, and Ammon now wants it back. It's time for a history lesson, as Jephthah ransacks the earlier books in the Bible to tell how Israel didn't take any Ammonite land. In fact, Israel was strictly forbidden to touch any land belonging to Edom, Moab or Ammon. It appears that Ammon has encroached on land won by Israel during the battle against the Amorite king Sihon. If God has given the land to Israel, Jephthah says, who is the king of Ammon to ask for it back? He asks why the king doesn't simply take what his own deity Chemosh gives him. After all, the Israelites simply took what God gave them. He mentions Moab's king Balak, who acknowledged Israel's right to possess his land, and points out that Israel has occupied the Transjordan for around 300 years without anyone challenging them. To Jephthah, Ammon is clearly in the wrong, and he asks the king to let God decide who is allowed to live where. Ammon's king ignores Jephthah, who, the book of Judges tells its readers, becomes filled with the spirit of God, a superpower which has thus far been sidelined in Israel's attempt to overthrow the Ammonite threat. Jephthah then advances against the Ammonites, announcing boldly that if God gives him victory, he will sacrifice to him the first living thing that comes out of the door of his house on his return. Jephthah then wipes out 20 Ammonite towns, effectively ending the enemy occupation. On returning home, however, Israel's saviour is horrified to see his young daughter coming to greet him. She is overjoyed to see her daddy and dances while playing the tambourine, but Jephthah is broken. His promise to God needs to be fulfilled and he is utterly grief-stricken. The girl accepts her fate stoically and asks only for two months to say her goodbyes and weep that she will never get married. Once the two months is up, her father honours his promise and his daughter is killed. Kickstarting what Judges tells readers is a tradition of young Israelite women taking to the hills for four days in honour of the girl's death. Meanwhile, the powerful Israelite tribe of Ephraim is angry that Jephthah didn't ask for any help in the battle against Ammon, just as they were put out when Gideon left them out of the fight against Midian. Their leaders are so incensed that they threaten to burn down Jephthah's house with him in it. Jephthah tells them that they didn't offer any assistance, even when asked, and that instead he took his life in his own hands trying to rescue Israel from an invasion force. He has no idea why they want to fight him. The end result is Israel's first civil war as Ephraim's army marches into Gilead. 
It's ironic that the only people who Ephraim's clans are prepared to fight appear to be their fellow Israelites, and it shows how far the nation has fallen into disarray since the time of Joshua. Stung by the insults that they are not proper Israelites, Gilead's clans subdue Ephraim and seize control of the strategically important fords across the River Jordan that allow for east-west traffic. Any survivor from Ephraim who wants to cross back over into their own country is now stopped at the border by Jephthah's troops and asked to pronounce a single word, Shibboleth. No one is sure what Shibboleth means, but ear of wheat is a possibility. It's the pronunciation, not the meaning, that is important. Anyone who says Sibboleth is killed, as their regional dialect proves that they must be from Ephraim. 42,000 Ephraimites die in the skirmishes, and Jephthah rules Israel for another six years until he dies. Israel remains at peace for 25 years after Jephthah's death. Little is known about the three judges who rule Israel after him. Ibzan is probably from Bethlehem and is famed for his 60 children and for his willingness to let them marry outside their clan. Elon is from Zebulun and steers Israel apparently without incident for 10 years until he is succeeded by Abdon who has 40 sons and 30 grandsons. These men ride on 70 donkeys, but Abdon appears to perform no acts of daring do worthy of inclusion in the Bible. Inevitably, everything then completely falls apart. After Abdon's death, Israel defaults to open worship of pagan idols, and readers are told that God abandons them to their enemies to the west. For the next 40 years, Israel languishes under Philistine rule until a woman who is unable to have children receives some unexpected news. The woman is from the tribal region of Dan in west-central Israel and appears to see an angel. The angel promises her that she is going to become pregnant with a very special son. As such, she must make sure that she neither drinks alcohol nor eats any unclean food. Her son must never cut his hair nor shave. The name for someone leading this kind of austere life is a Nazarite, and the woman is told that one day the boy will deliver Israel from its Philistine enemies. The woman's husband isn't present at the time, and, no doubt overjoyed that he is finally going to be a father, he prays to God for advice on how to bring up his son. Another day, when the woman is working in a field, the celestial visitor appears again, and this time she runs off to fetch her husband. Fortunately, the stranger is still there and repeats the rules by which the woman is to live until her son is born. Not realising that he is speaking to an angel, the man, whose name is Manoah, offers him some food. The stranger politely declines, suggesting that Manoah sacrifice his food to God instead. Manoah wants to know the man's name, but the angel explains that his name is beyond understanding. Again, it suggests how far away from God Israel's people have drifted, given that this particular Israelite doesn't twig who the stranger might be. Oblivious, Manoah sacrifices a goat and sets fire to it. The flames blaze towards heaven and the angel disappears into them, a stunt so dramatic that Manoah and his wife fall flat on their faces in disbelief. Only when they can no longer see their new friend do they realise that they must have seen an angel. 
Manoa is convinced that they are going to die as they have looked God in the face, an act that is believed to be fatal in the Old Testament. Despite not being given a name, Manoa's wife is eminently more sensible and reassures her husband that if this happens, none of the angel's promises can come true. Sure enough, the woman gives birth to a baby boy, who the couple name Samson. Interestingly, Manoa's wife is one of six barren women in the Bible, all of whom later become pregnant. Such a turnaround in the life of a woman who can't have children in an age when her entire worth was in her ability to conceive sends a powerful message that the God of the Bible sees no cause as a lost one if he has plans to reverse it. Once Samson is fully grown, the book of Judges describes how the spirit of the Lord begins to stir in him. However, rather than find himself a wife from his own tribe or even Israel, he loses his heart to an enemy Philistine. The Philistines are some of the fiercest opponents to God's people in the Old Testament and are a thorn in Israel's side from the time of Samson right through to King David. They settle on the western side of Canaan bordering the Mediterranean and from here they launch so many attacks against God's people that the word Philistine can mean any enemy of Israel. Two characteristics in particular distinguish the Philistines from the Israelites. Firstly, they worship pagan gods, such as the fertility deity Dagon. Secondly, and far more importantly, they have mastered ironworking and are using their newfound ability to make weapons, upping the threat significantly. It's not surprising that the Israelites go weak at the knees when faced with such a fierce and formidable enemy. The use of the term Philistine as a byword for those hostile to art and culture comes from 17th century town versus gown battles in the German university city of Jena. A local ecclesiastical superintendent named Georg Heinrich Goetze referred to the townspeople as Philister, German for Philistines, using the passage from the book of Judges that relates to Samson. However, relations are originally good between Philistia and Israel. Isaac settles here for a time and the Philistine king Abimelech is keen for there to be no bad blood between their nations. It's during the time when the judges rule Israel that the Philistines become a real problem. This makes Samson's choice of life partner an extraordinary one. The response from his exasperated parents is the Old Testament equivalent of, seriously? Still. Samson has made his mind up and sends his father off to make the woman his wife. His parents don't realise this at the time, but the book of Judges tells readers that God is behind Samson's relationship. He is simply using it as an opportunity for Israel to confront its Philistine enemy. Samson sets off with his parents to introduce them to his beloved, but on the way, drama strikes. He finds himself face to face with a young and powerful lion. Suddenly endowed with superhuman strength, a force attributed to the spirit of God, he rips the animal apart with his bare hands. Keeping this particular adventure from his parents, the family continues to meet Samson's intended, who he clearly likes very much. When the time comes for the wedding, Samson and his family return to his future bride's house. Possibly out of curiosity, or to prove to himself that it really did happen, Samson takes a short detour to find the carcass of the lion he killed. 
Some bees have made their nest in it, and he scoops out some honey and takes it back to his parents to share, breaking two of Israel's codes as he does so. Firstly, as a Nazarite, he is not allowed to touch a dead animal. Secondly, honey may be considered clean by Jews, but not if it has been in contact with an animal corpse. Weddings in Old Testament times are very different to how they are today in many parts of the world, and Samson is treated to a feast and is provided with 30 Philistine men to act in the best man role. Clearly in high spirits, he offers the men a riddle. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. He gives the men seven days to crack the code and offers a prize of a fine linen garment plus 30 sets of clothing for each of them if they solve the puzzle. If they fail though, they must each give the same gift to Samson. Design fans might be interested that cans of Lyle's Golden Syrup, a British sweet treat, still bear this quote from the Book of Judges on every tin, along with a dead lion with some bees buzzing around it. Losing face appears not to be an option for the violent thugs who have been assigned to Samson. Unwilling to offload a pile of valuable textiles, they threaten his bride that they will burn her along with her father's entire household if she doesn't wheedle the answer to the riddle out of her bow. Distraught, the woman tells her new husband that he must truly hate her if he has set a riddle and not shared the answer with her. Samson caves. She, of course, tells his companions, and when they guess the riddle correctly, Samson flies into a rage. The book again attributes this to the power of the Spirit of God, and in his fury, Samson slays 30 Philistines from the local town, then gives their clothing to his treacherous groomsmen before storming back to his parents. By the time Samson has cooled off and returns to marry his sweetheart, he meets with news that sends him over the edge. Keen to reunite with his intended, he brings a young goat as a gift, but when he tries to enter her father's house, he stops him. The man assumed that Samson was furious with the woman, and so he gave her away to one of his 30 groomsmen. Trying to make a bad situation less awful, he attempts to palm Samson off with the woman's younger sister, claiming that she is prettier. Now more determined than ever to harm the Philistines, Samson decides to take his revenge. In an act that will horrify anyone who loves animals, he catches 300 foxes, ties them in twos by the tail and attaches a burning torch to each pair of tails. He then lets the terrified animals loose in his father-in-law's cornfields, vineyards and olive groves, incinerating everything they touch. When the local Philistines discover that Samson started the fire because his wife was given away to another man, they burn the woman and her father to death. Far from applauding this punishment, Samson is furious. The men have killed his wife and he vows to have his revenge, attacking them so viciously that a large number of them are killed. He then holds up in a cave while the Philistines gather an army to hunt him down. The Philistine force enters the tribal region of Judah, where Samson has gone to ground, and, naturally, the locals want to know why an enemy army is gathering on their land. Their leaders are worried. Judah is currently under Philistine rule, and Samson risks making things enormously difficult for the tribe. 
3,000 men from Judah arrive at Samson's cave wanting answers, but the only one they get is that Samson is paying the Philistines back for what they did to him. On the proviso that they don't kill him themselves, Samson agrees to be bound up and handed over to the Philistines instead. He is then tied up with fresh ropes and, delighted that their foe has been trussed up and handed to them on a plate, the Philistines run towards their prisoner to finish him off. The book of Judges describes how God's power surges through Samson, his ropes break like burned grass and he is free. Grabbing the nearest available weapon, which turns out to be the jawbone of a donkey, another forbidden thing for a Nazarite to touch, he wields it like a lightsaber, killing 1,000 Philistines. Overcome with thirst after his exertion, Samson cries out to God, crediting him with the victory. He asks if God wants him to collapse and be taken by his enemies. A miraculous spring then appears from the ground to slake the warrior's thirst, and Samson goes on to lead the Israelites for the next 20 years. What happens next is one of the few Bible stories that appears to be universally known outside of groups of believers. Having already played with fire by wooing a Philistine bride, Samson has unleashed actual fire on his enemy. Far from learned from his lesson though, his head is turned by yet another woman from the other side. This particular forbidden fruit doesn't mark loyalty to her husband very highly and has given her name to any woman who betrays her man. Samson is about to meet Delilah. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends. And if you're feeling generous, why not give us a five-star review wherever you're listening. Thank you. <laughs>